Well, if you haven't already turned to the Gospel of Mark, I would invite you to turn there to chapter 11 there in the book. And if you're new to church or new to reading a Bible, uh, you'll find the Gospel of Mark is the second book of the New Testament, about two-thirds on the way through uh, your Bible. Uh, as a church, for most of the past year, we've been walking through passage by passage in this great Gospel Our small groups are studying the passages ahead of time each week, so they come prepared, really having uh, worked through the text themselves. And I wonder if you work through the text on on your own or in a small group this week, I wonder if if you had a few questions about it. I mean, it's a rather strange and even odd passage, isn't it? I mean, here's a little sermon, a spoiler. I mean, in the passage, Jesus gets angry at a fig tree, and he gets upset at a fig, at a tree. And then he walks into a temple and he just starts throwing down tables. He's throwing money everywhere. And this isn't kind of our normal picture of Jesus, is it? It's a strange episode. In fact, it's in this passage where we see Jesus' only miracle of destruction. I mean, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus heal people from leprosy. We see, people, we see Jesus raise folks from the dead. We see him calm the storm and yet here he destroys a plant it's only a miracle of destruction it's not a real feel-good passage is it you know it doesn't leave you with warm fuzzies and it's a passage that on your own as a pastor to be honest i'd never just choose to preach it i mean if i'm a guest preacher at a church i'm not thinking okay curse of the fig tree here you go you know and if it was the last sermon that i ever preached like the series we did this summer i would never pick it in fact none of our staff chose it Uh, Because we wouldn't preach it on our own, but as we go through the counsel of God, we see that all of Scripture is a feast for our souls. So we love preaching expository here because we're going through each passage in the book of Mark, and so we don't skip the fig tree episode. We don't skip Jesus turning over tables. And so we're going to take some time today to stop, to stop and look at this strange episode and see that it has an incredible amount to teach us. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer briefly and ask for his help this morning. Father, we praise you for your word. Father, we thank you for passages about fig trees. We thank you that you have divinely inspired this passage for this people today. For us to learn, for us to grow, for us to be encouraged, for us to be rebuked and challenged. So we ask for your help, Father, would the Spirit illumine our hearts Would we walk out those back doors in a few minutes here changed as a result of the word of God? Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in this passage this morning in Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 25. We're going to see three things. This will serve as our outline this morning. The first thing we'll see is the rebuke of Jesus toward religion. We're going to see that Jesus has some harsh words for the religious. So a rebuke. The second, we'll see the change that should result. The change that should result from this rebuke. And then finally, we'll be left with the power to live a new life. So we'll see a rebuke, we'll see the change, and then we'll see the power to change. So let's start with the first point, point number one. The rebuke of Jesus toward religion. And I'll start reading just verses 12 through 14. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Let me give you some context to what's going on here. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. So Jesus is going up, marching towards his death. And it's on Saturday that Jesus and his disciples had arrived in Bethany, just a few kilometers to the east of Jerusalem. And they had arrived there to celebrate the Passover, this national festival of Israel. Several hundred thousand pilgrims would come into town. There's no hotel chains, no Burj Al Arab or JW Marriott. And so what people would do is they'd come into town, they'd stay with family, or more likely they'd actually stay in villages around Jerusalem. So that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're staying in the village of Bethany outside of Jerusalem. They're commuting in the morning into Jerusalem for the festivities. And then at the end of the day, they'd go back out to Bethany to sleep. And they'd do that all week. That's what they're doing. And on their morning commute into Jerusalem, we see that Jesus, he gets the munchies. You ever get the munchies? He's just a little hungry. He wants a morning snack. And he sees a fig tree there. He sees it's in leaf and he's, he's ready to go. He's ready to have his snack. He sees it and he walks up to it, sees the leaves, and he finds that, alas, there are no figs. What do you do in a similar situation? Maybe, maybe you've been on a long road trip. Maybe not here in the UAE. Maybe in your home country you're on a long, long road trip and you get hungry. You get those munchies. You start hearing your stomach growl and roar you just want to eat something. And so as you drive the car with the family in tow, you're looking out the window hoping that finally you'll find the restaurant you want to eat at at the exit. Maybe in South Africa you're holding out for Spur Steak Ranch. I don't know if any of you are fans of Spur. Or maybe you're looking out for a McDonald's. You're hungry and you're hungry. You're hearing over and over again from your kids in the back seat. Maybe those famous words that dads have heard for centuries, right? Daddy, Daddy, are we there yet? And you're thinking to yourself, gee, if we were there yet, then we'd be there, right? (laughs) We're not there yet, and you're going nuts. You're going crazy. You're hungry. Your kids are screaming. And then uh, off into the distance, you see those golden arches, right? (laughs) You see off in the horizon that big M, and you're ready. You're ready to go, and you're already dreaming about what it's going to be like to sit there with your biggie-sized french fries, You're thinking about your kids quiet, they're eating their food, and you're able to enjoy this lunch. You can almost taste it as you go into the parking lot. You have arrived in Big Mac heaven. I'm not talking about Mac styles. (laughs) I'm talking about that double-decker hamburger with that special sauce. You know what I'm talking about? At least there's four or five of you that know that delicious special sauce. You're ready. You pack up the kids out of the car, get them out of their car seats, and you're going through the parking lot. It looks rather empty, but you're just thinking, okay, more grease for yourself. It's okay. You get to the front door. You look inside. It's dark, and you see a sign. And what does it say? That McDonald's has gone out of business. They've moved locations. They're done. Your dream, your Big Mac dreams have been smashed. Well, that's what's happening here in this text. Well, not exactly what's happening here in this text. But you get the point of Jesus' disappointment here. He's hungry. He's God, but he's God in the flesh. He feels hunger. He feels pain. He feels sadness. And he's hungry and he wants a fig. 
Is that too much to ask? He goes up to the tree and it has let him down. Now, it's not that Jesus has forgotten when fig season is. Fig season would have been a couple months away from August onto October. But all scholars agree that at this point during the Passover, there would have been some small edible pieces of fruit on the tree already. Jesus sees the leaves, and so he has all right to think that some of the fruit is already there. He goes up, doesn't find any, and what does he do? He curses the tree. Now, maybe this makes you feel a little uncomfortable as you read it. Maybe this whole passage does. And you think to yourself, this isn't like Jesus. Jesus is nice. He's kind. This isn't like Jesus. He's behaving like a frustrated little bully on this fig tree. Now, why does he have it out for figs? No, there's not anything wrong with figs. If you ate some for breakfast today, you're okay. They're not condemned. They're good. They're tasty. And we know from Scripture, Jesus doesn't just go around cursing whatever he gets upset about. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, he's well aware here that there are no figs on the tree. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. It's in this moment that instead of speaking a parable, which we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus is usually speaking a parable. He's speaking a story that we can identify, that we can see that the point of the story relates to something in our lives. So Jesus usually speaks the parables, but here in our passage, Jesus is literally enacting this parable out right before our eyes. It's a parable in action. And what Jesus is showing his disciples and what he's showing us is that the temple in Jerusalem and the nation of Israel are about to be decisively and swiftly judged. Now, why is that? Well, let's look down at verses 15 through 19. We see what brings swift judgment. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So this morning commute is over. Jesus, he leaves the fig tree behind, and he arrives at the temple. Now this temple would have had four different divisions, and in the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, laid there in the sanctuary. And only the high priest would go once a year to offer a sacrifice for the priests and for the people. Otherwise, it was completely off limits. So that would be there in the center. And around it, you'd have the court of the women where the women would worship. Then you'd have the court of Israel where the Jewish men would worship. And then the biggest court that would be surrounding the rest of it was the court of the Gentiles. This was the largest court. It was as big as several football fields wide and several football fields long It was for the Gentiles. It was where the Gentiles could come, learn about the ways of God. It was built for them. And this is where the scene takes place. Jesus walks up into this court of the Gentiles. He sees that a market has been set up. A souk has been set up in the temple precincts. And he just goes and he just starts turning over the tables. He starts turning over the benches of those selling the doves. Money is flying everywhere as the money changers are, are, 
are, have to see their money turned over and see them rushed out of the temple. And Jesus is angry. He's rightfully angry. And in his anger, Jesus does not sin. Us, on the other hand, for us, our anger isn't always a good thing, is it? Often we get upset when people change or affect our own personal plans or our own personal kingdom is affected. But here Jesus is righteously angry because he is the king and this is his kingdom. He has every right to be angry because the glory of God in this moment is being mocked. This is God's house and God's house has been turned into a marketplace. It was a place that were meant to be worshipers of the true God. Now there's money changers. And merchants ripping people off. And so Jesus begins to shut down these operations. He begins to turn over the tables. It was here during Passover that this temple would have been packed. Hundreds of thousands of people would have come. Many would have brought their own sacrifice so you could bring your own lamb all the way from home. But that was a risk because on the way your lamb could have been destroyed. It could have uh, been blemished. And on Passover your sacrifice had to be perfect. So most would just bring their money. They'd bring their local currency with them. They'd come to the money-changing tables, and they would exchange their money for the local Tyrian currency uh, that they could then use to buy an acceptable sacrifice. The thing was, these money-changers would rip people off. They would charge exorbitant rates to change their money, terrible exchange rates. And so people would come, bring their money, would lose most of it, those buying doves, those, the poor people who couldn't afford a lamb to sacrifice would buy a dove. And here we see that those selling doves were, were cheating people. Every last dollar was taken from these folks that would come in. So Jesus shuts down these operations. And guess who would profit the most from this bad business? It was the high priest. It was the religious leaders of the day who would get a high percentage of the proceeds. Now God's house had turned into a business. It was sick. It was twisted. Jesus was angry at the corruption. But we notice that that's not what Jesus was most angry about. Notice what Jesus does in verses 15 and 16. He doesn't just send the sellers out, does he? He sends the sellers out of the temple, but he also sends the buyers out of the temple along with those just passing through, those carrying merchandise, those walking through, because evidently this court of the Gentiles was turned into a walkway. It was a shortcut through town. And Jesus says, I don't even want that taking place. I don't want this courtyard being used for anything else but worship. No, God's house had become a market. It had become a shortcut. The temple was trivialized. This court of the Gentiles, I mean, think about it this way, this court was meant to be a place of evangelism. It was the one place that you and I, the one place that Gentiles could actually come in to the temple. It was the one place that you could go and what was supposed to happen is the chief priests, the scribes were supposed to meet you there. They were supposed to share with you about the true God. They were supposed to tell you about sin, about forgiveness. They were supposed to teach you the Torah, teach you the Word of God. And yet none of that was happening. Instead, there was a marketplace, no way for the Gentiles to come and worship or find more about God. Israel had become consumed with money, consumed with power. Here's what's scary when we read this. 
Jesus is telling us, look at the fig tree. It looks good. It's got promising leaves on it. Friend, look at the temple. Isn't it grand? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it magnificent? Look at all this pomp. Look at all this circumstance. It's a wonderful place. And yet when you go behind the temple wall and you look inside, do you see what's happening there? A beautiful building, and yet everything of spiritual substance had been done away with. There's no fruit on the tree. Now here's the first lesson that Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, be warned, disciples. Be warned, Redeemer Church of Dubai. Be warned of the hypocrisy that can fester in the heart of religion. And the first thing we see in this parable is that religious observance, it's not all that we think it is. This outward practice of religious activities does not serve as a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. It doesn't serve as an indicator of what's going on in our lives spiritually. The temple went through their sacrifices. The temple looked good. The high priests were still working. And yet Jesus rebukes them for their hypocrisy. And he cuts a window through our hearts and he shows us that we're no different. It's the point here in this first part of the parables. We're supposed to see ourselves in this mirror. As Jesus enacts this parable, we are supposed to see ourselves as those high priests, as those scribes, as those Jews who have neglected the ways of God and are merely going through the religious activities time and time again. So Jesus is telling us that change must result. You must change. And that's point number two. It's the second point is we're going to see the change that should result from this rebuke. This issue of hypocrisy affects us all. And I think that's why this is a terrifying passage. The chief priests and scribes are going through the motions, and yet here on Passover, their true hearts, their true desires came out. We see that by how they react to Jesus' rebuke in verse 18, don't we? It's not repentance that they've offended God because he's right and powerful, that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, or because he's the Messiah who has come to take away their sins, because he's the creator of the whole world, because he's the sustainer of every last microscopic atom. It's not it at all. You would think that after all that Jesus has done with his miracles, with his healing, and even commanding the authority here in the temple, you would think that finally these religious leaders would get it. But it says there in verse 18, that they did fear Jesus, right? Do you see that? They feared Jesus, but not because of who he was or because of their sin. Do you see that? They feared Jesus because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. You catch there just another window into the hearts of these religious leaders. They weren't upset because of who Jesus was. They weren't upset because of what Jesus said. They weren't upset because of their sin. What's the reason they wanted to get rid of Jesus? It's because they were afraid the crowd would follow him. They were afraid that the crowd was so amazed with Jesus' teaching that they would leave their temple, that they would stop buying sacrifices, that they'd stop going to the money-changing tables and take part in their swindless ways No, it was pure selfishness. This fig tree in the temple show us that just because the structures and trappings of fruitfulness and religion are there, it has no bearing on the sincerity of faith or the motives of the heart. 
know, the religious leaders may have swindled the people in their system, but Jesus is not fooled. He sees the corruption of their hearts. He sees it. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 that an hour was coming when true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Friends, are you worshiping God in spirit and truth this morning? Is what you're doing on Friday mornings, is that indicative of the rest of your week? I mean, we come here, we sing, we study, we give, we talk, we pray. But I wonder if the other six days of the week, we live our lives in such a way that shows that our hearts are far from Him. I mean, are we all smiles on Friday morning or, or maybe when we gather with our Christian friends and get in private, we are unloving. We are impatient. Maybe you treat your coworkers behind the scenes terribly. Maybe you cut corners at work and you cheat thinking, well, everybody else is doing it, so it's got to be okay. Or maybe you're kissing your spouse goodnight, but on the inside you're unfaithful and lust consumes your heart. Or maybe in public you treat your spouse with dignity and respect, with kindness and gentleness, but behind the scenes, as soon as you get home on Friday afternoon, you treat your spouse harshly, you complain, you bicker, you argue with them in such a way that demeans them, such a way that treats them harshly, such a way that manipulates them. Friend, I wonder if we were to take a slice of your life these past six days back at home in the privacy of your home and we were to replay a video, an audio of some scenes from your life and put it up here on the screen right now this morning for all of us to see, I wonder if you would become just a little bit nervous. If you'd become just a little bit nervous that we would finally see a side of you that we have never seen before. That we'd see a side of you that you wouldn't want us to see because it's despicable and sad. Have we become religious professionals? We know what to do to be a Christian. We know the lingo. We know the terminology. We know how to behave in public. We know what we need to do. But friends, God is not fooled by it. He's not fooled by our hypocrisy. God isn't pleased with our religious observance if he doesn't have our heart. I'm afraid so many of us just do church. We work hard not to walk in holiness, but we work hard to keep up appearances. It's hard work. It's hard work to pretend. Yet I want to remind us this morning that the gospel frees us from the slavish burden of pretending. See, all we have to do is remind ourselves and look up at the cross and see that the sheer magnitude of Christ's death and sacrifice frees us up to stop pretending. The sheer magnitude of Christ's death there at Golgotha frees us to say, look, look at the depth and height Jesus went to save us. There's a reason for that. We have sinned greatly against our God. That's why Jesus died. I like one particular story, especially, uh, especially great, back in the Great Awakening. This was a great religious revival a few hundred years ago in North America, up in the northeastern part. And there's a pastor that I love, uh, the foremost pastor and theologian in that day named Jonathan Edwards. And he was leaving, leading this revival and leading these prayer meetings. And one day he had a men's prayer meeting gathered. And he had 800 men gathered there. It was a wonderful time. Well, during the meeting, a woman, one of the, uh, a wife of one of the men who was attending, brought a little note with a prayer request for her, hus- her husband. She slipped in and, and dropped it off and managed to get to Jonathan Edwards. 
Edward's thinking that this man was, was there in the assembly. The wife had wanted the assembly to pray for her husband. And Edward's thinking that he was there. He took out this note and he read it anonymously, but he read it to the people. This man had been guilty of immense hypocrisy. He had treated his wife poorly. Up in public, he was a great Christian, but behind the scenes, he was harsh to his wife. And so Jonathan Edwards read that note. He read this note of this man with spiritual pride and this hypocrisy. And then at the end of the letter, Edwards looked out upon the crowd and said, Gentlemen, would the man whose wife had written this letter, would you please raise your hand so we can pray for you? It's a little scary, isn't it? It was a brief moment of silence. And then guess what happened? Over 300 men raised their hands, all convinced that it was their wife who had written the letter, all convicted by the spirit of their sin. Now they felt to confess and repent. Now friends, we all struggle with hypocrisy, don't we? We all struggle with hypocrisy to some degree. Now friends, let's be honest. Our hearts and lives don't always match. And like these men who raised their hands, we're all guilty. Stop pretending. Let's stop pretending. Let's stop blaming others. Let's stop blaming our circumstances. Let's stop hiding. Let's repent. Let's confess our sin to God and let's confess our sin to one another. We know we're all struggling. So let's not fake it here. Let's come to God because our life of hypocrisy won't last long. Eventually you'll be found out by someone else or by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. No, change needs to be a result of this rebuke by Jesus. The result must be death to hypocrisy. It must be death to lifeless religion. And we'll finally, here we see how we drive out this sin, how we drive out this hypocrisy. The third point is, what's the power to live a new life? What's the power to fight religion? What's the power to fight hypocrisy? That's point number three. It's in this last part of the passage. We come full circle. So the first scene in this modern acted out parable is the fig tree. Then Jesus goes over to the temple. And now Jesus will come full circle back to this poor little fig tree once again. Look at what he's doing. Let's see how the passage ends in verses 20 to 25. Because Jesus is going to use this fig tree to help finish off the interpretation of what he said about the temple. So look at these words. Look at verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So we're back to the fig tree. The morning commute has happened the very next day. They passed the fig tree. Now it is dead. <laughs> this cursed fig tree is withered to its roots. An incredible miracle. And one day, 
It has been devastated from the roots onto the leaves. This is important because Jesus is showing us that the main point to the parable is not only to show us the character of the temple, which we've looked at already, but the main point is to show us the fate of the temple. The prophets have long used the fig tree as a symbol of judgment. We see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel and in Micah. The point here isn't a temple cleansing. It's actually a temple closing. It's the end of the temple. It's the end of an era. Jesus is clearing it out and laying an axe to the heart of the institution. This leafy fig tree with its promise of fruit was as deceptive as the promises of the temple. The temple had withered from its roots and now it will be done away with forever. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, not one stone of the temple will be left on another. In Mark 14, he says, the temple will be broken down. And in verse 58, he says, it is being raised anew in three days. A temple not made with human hands. What Jesus is saying is that in his death, he alone will bring access to God. That it's not lambs, it's not goats, but it's his blood that can make Israel right with God. And at the moment in his death, we see a visual illustration of this when the great curtain that divides the Holy of Holies is torn into two, dramatizing the dissolution of the temple as the means to approach God. Jesus is rejecting the temple. He's replaced it with himself. Jesus as the center of Israel. Jesus as the ultimate Passover land. Jesus is the temple. And after his death and after his resurrection, there's no more need for the sacrifices. He's where we go to meet with God. He is God in the flesh. And so that's the point that he's getting at here. That we need no temple. We need no other mediator between us and God. That's why we don't pray to any saints. That's why we don't pray to Mary. That's why it doesn't matter whether we meet in a shopping mall or in a hotel or if we have a building of our own. Because no cathedral can hold in the presence of God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 9, Jesus says, I am the mediator of a new covenant. And it's in this new covenant, this new promise that is filled with good news for us today. It's filled with good news for each and every one of us. That Jesus is not just a temple for Israel. You catch that back in verse 17? Do you notice earlier that Jesus quotes the Isaiah 56 passage that Robert read for us earlier? Where Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is saying salvation is open for everyone, not just the Jews. And the point of prayer here is that all the nations are doing it. All of us now have access to God in Jesus. It's just promised way back in Genesis 12 where through the family of Abraham it is said that through Abraham all the nations will be blessed. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're from Papua New Guinea, if you're from India, if you're from Tasmania, even Tasmania, if you're from any of the African countries, North America, if you're from countries and cities that I can't even begin to pronounce, so I won't try, 
Friend, you have access to God through Jesus. He is the temple for you, for all of us, each and every single one of us. The Jews would have expected the Messiah to purge the temple of the Gentiles, of the aliens and foreigners. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He doesn't clear the temple of the Gentiles, but he clears it for them. And in just a few days from now in our passage, the chief priests and the leaders are going to kill Jesus for this. By what man meant for evil, God intended for good. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Because each and every one of us are guilty. Each and every one of us, uh, one of us has sinned against the righteous God. We deserve death and judgment. The Bible says the wages of our sin is none other than death. And yet Christ, in a way that these animals never could, has borne our sin upon himself on the cross as he died. Those sacrifices could never atone for our sin. That's why they happened year after year after year. They were a reminder to the Jewish people that they didn't work. They were a reminder that it didn't ultimately solve the problem of sin. They were to point to an everlasting, to an ultimate sacrifice who had come, Jesus. It was his death on the cross where he took upon the sin of his followers, saving us from eternal judgment and giving us heaven, giving us eternal life where there'll be no pain, no sorrow, no tears. And most of all, Jesus will be there. Friends, this is good news and it is open to all of us today. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we're thrilled that you're here. It's not a mistake that you're here. It's not an error that you're here. It's not an accident that you're here. But God has brought you here. And we want to tell you today that Jesus is the door through which we may enter into God's presence. There's no mediator. There's no temple. There's no good works that can save you. Now salvation comes through Jesus alone. So friend, turn from your sin. The Bible says just to repent, to turn from your sin, and then to believe that Jesus is the only way to save you. I encourage you to do that today. And if you're here and you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, Jesus is the way to fight our sin. He's the way to fight our hypocrisy. He's the way to fight our religion. And he tells us how in verses 22 and 23. Because with the loss of prayer, the loss of the, sorry, the loss of the house of prayer being the temple, there was a question that would come up. Where do we pray? Where do we worship then if there's no temple? Well, the answer is anywhere. Because Jesus is the temple. And we're the new praying community when we come together. We see the prayer is shown as something that the community of disciples undertakes together and we're free to gather anywhere. His death breaks down the barriers of the temple there's no more courts. There's no women's court. There's no men's court. There's no court of the Gentiles. Now there's a temple not made with human hands, without barriers, without limitations. And so there are no church buildings that are more efficacious than others. And we can pray with anyone, not just with a pastor or a religious leader. No, no one has faster access to God than any other child of God. We have equal access through Jesus who stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And so the power of God to conquer hypocrisy, 
The power of God to conquer religion comes through Jesus Christ. He simply says, ask and it will be done. We have to stop here for a second before we kind of close off and we have to ask, well, what does this mean here in this passage? What is Jesus saying about prayer? Is he saying that there's anything we can ask and God will answer it? Is he saying that God is a cosmic vending machine. We just kind of push the button of whatever we want. And as we push it, we'll gather the answer right down there at the bottom. Well, of course not. This is not what we see throughout Scripture. And with any theological concept, we need to not simply take one or two verses out of context, but we need to look at the whole counsel of God, don't we? If God simply answers every single prayer, then what would have happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked the Father, please let this cup be passed? Of course, the cup was not passed and Jesus went to his death. But perhaps the Apostle Paul, maybe you can relate in your trial and circumstance. He asks God time and time again, at least three times, God, please take the thorn and my flesh away. Take it away. Maybe you've prayed that prayer for yourself. Well, so it can't mean that God will just give us anything, even good things. No, the book of James helps to rescue the balance of these promises of Jesus James describes two dangers. The first danger, he says in chapter 4, is that we have not because we have asked not. That we haven't prayed at all. Then on the other side, he says the second danger, this danger of asking selfishly. You ask and receive not because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We can fall over either side of the cliff, says Paul Miller in his book on a praying life. I think Paul Miller hits the nail on the head when he says all of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the Gospels can all be summarized in one word. One word. Ask. Ask. His greatest concern in our lives is our failure to ask. So the point of Jesus here is pray. The point of Jesus is pray. And he's getting at this question of why aren't we praying? And the second question he's asking is, what do you pray when you do pray? That gets further to the heart here in this passage. When you do pray, are you praying like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he says, not my will, but yours be done. When he surrenders to God. Or do you pray, like James says, for your own passions, for your own desires, for your own material well-being? I once heard an illustration that prayer is like a boat hook that a sailor uses to anchor and to pull himself to shore. Now the sailor doesn't do that and try to pull the shore to his boat. No, the sailor tries to pull his boat to the shore. And so in prayer we should draw ourselves to God, not try to pull God down to ourselves to feed our passions. So friend, consider in your life today, are you relating to God in your prayer life? Are you in relationship with Him? Or does your prayers merely consist of a laundry list of what you want? Are you asking for the power to defeat sin and hypocrisy? Or are you praying for material possessions that will make you happy? Do you only pray when times are difficult? Or friend, do you pray at all? We just take an honest assessment of your life before you leave today. Are you praying? And are you withholding forgiveness from someone while you do pray? As you pray God for grace in your life, are you withholding grace from someone else? 
That's why Mark adds that at the end of this passage. Because forgiveness is a big deal. And an unforgiven heart is like a phone line to God that keeps getting disconnected. And you have trouble getting through. Now friend, are you relating to God at all? In closing, I had some time to think about this sermon this week as I waited for some friends at the airport doing an airport pickup. And I don't know if you've ever just sat there at Costa Coffee before, just watching people there in Terminal 1. And I don't mean in a stalker kind of way where you're just really staring at everybody. Now, I didn't do that, I promise. But I just sat there at Costa Coffee in Terminal 1, just kind of stared off and just kind of watched what was going on. It was a beautiful sight. You see families and friends reunited together. I saw these two young ladies who were so excited to meet up with whoever they were meeting and they ran through the waiting area as fast as they could. They didn't care what we thought about them even though they looked really, really, really silly. But it didn't matter to them. They were excited to meet the person that they loved on the other side. I watched as a grandfather met up with his son or a father met up with his son and then met up with his grandson. And I watched as he picked up his grandson, half asleep in his arms, and watched as a tear went down his cheek as he held him tight and had seen his grandson for the first time in who knows how long. And as I sat there and watched, I saw husbands and wives reunited, perhaps for the first time in a long time. Well, friend, I wonder if this morning maybe this is your story with God. I wonder if you've flown off and have been living your own life in your own way. I wonder if you're in need of a reunion this morning. Maybe you need to reconnect with God. Maybe it's been a while since you've enjoyed fellowship with Him, and this morning you've been convicted of your hypocrisy. You've been convicted of the sin in your heart, and you need to return to Him. You need to begin to trust Him and trust the power of God to work in your life. Maybe for others of you, you've never met God. I pray that today would be the day that you begin fellowship with your creator and maker. May it be sweet. And while it's sweet to meet a family member again at the airport, consider the sweetness in coming back to God or in meeting God for the first time. Let's pray together. Father, we pray. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts. Father, we ask that you would change our lives this morning. That our church would not be filled with hypocrisy. That we would not be filled with religious activity like these Israelites in the temple, Father. But we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would worship you in spirit, that we would worship you in truth. Father, that we would confess our sin this morning that we'd repent of trying to live our lives our own way, that we'd repent of our prayerlessness. Oh, Father, would we trust you? Father, for those that may not know you this morning, for those who've come not following Christ, Father, we pray that they'd repent of their sin and believe in Jesus today. Father, we pray that a multitude would come to you, that they'd experience the power of God in Christ. Father, we thank you that there's no other mediators. We thank you that there's no temple. We thank you that we have access to Christ. That he is the temple, Father. We pray as a church, as we go forth today, that we would live in that reality. That we are saved, that we are empowered, and that we live in Christ alone. Father, we pray these things 
In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.